Uh, great to talk to you, Kevin Erdman. Um, you have a very interesting perspective on something that I thought I already knew everything about because I saw the big short. And I think that that's all that's required, right? I saw the big short. I saw cele- celebrities gave me pithy explanations of what happened. They put it in layman's terms so that by the time I left the movie theater, I was like, okay, I get what happened in the housing crisis. And I think what I got out of that was that, you know, the federal government decided that more people should own homes, which we're not a big fan of uh, government policy trying to, you know, trying to make people behave in certain ways, but they wanted more people to own homes, so they made it really easy to do. They made it really easy to borrow money, and that caused the prices of houses to go up, and people borrowed too much money for houses that they couldn't afford. We ended up with this big surplus stock, these empty neighborhoods of foreclosed homes in Arizona and Florida, and that meant then the, I'm just paraphrasing, the government had to tighten it up, and that would fix everything. I'm going to guess that that's not your point of view. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of upside down. What do you think really (laughs) happened? Um, Yeah. So the truth of the matter is really almost the opposite of that. Um, And what what I found is that it was really a shortage of housing all along. That's been the main driver of sort of the 21st century American economic uh, conundrum. And the shortage is is especially in a few cities, which I I call the closed access cities there. Uh, Boston, New York City, uh, L.A. and San Francisco and, yep. and San, San Diego probably fits in that, although it's a smaller uh, city, not not necessarily as big of a, of a part of the problem. Um, and really what happened is a shortage of housing in those specific cities um, caused price, caused rents in those cities to skyrocket. Um, and and prices skyrocketed along with the rents and. And basically, a cap on population in those cities creates a, a bidding war for access. So the people that have the means to get into those cities bid up the cost of living in those cities, and it forced hundreds of thousands of families out of those cities, especially during the what we call the housing bubble. So there was this spike in migration, and the places that tend to take in uh, families that are moving out of those cities are Florida and Nevada and Arizona and inland California. What happened in, in those places? So it looks like a housing bubble in those places because they were building lots of houses, but yeah. prices were going up at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at, as at first at first glance, that seems clearly like too much demand, and and it's a unsustainable bubble. What was actually happening is they were on the receiving end of a really a refugee crisis, really right, a housing refugee crisis. Families desperately looking for an affordable place to live, and. Uh, and so it did create sort of a bubble environment in those cities, but it was due to a lack of housing, not only a lack of housing, you know, at, at the core, it was a lack of housing in L.A. and San Francisco and New York and Boston. But it became a lack of housing in Florida and Arizona because they couldn't build fast enough to keep up with this rush of families moving there to to economize, to make compromises, to, you know, to get away from sure. expensive places. But also because they're seeing you know, or they're hearing word of mouth, you know, you can buy a house outside Las Vegas, 5,000 square foot house for $200,000, and it'll be worth $400,000 next year. And you can just refinance, pay off the first more, like a lot of that was going on, right? That was drawing people to Phoenix and Vegas and most of Florida. Uh, I think so. I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, clearly, there were things happening in, um, in credit markets that 
that probably goosed it a little bit, right? Okay. That, but but I, I I think it's sort of like when oil prices when there's an oil shock and oil prices skyrocket and we blame and, oh, and and in the papers you'll see them blaming speculators, right? Yeah. Um, really, it's a supply and demand issue, and the speculators tend to really be almost a, a are a side effect of the su- supply and demand problem. They they're coming in really after the fact. Right. In fact. Surprisingly, the, the 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 spike in borrowing and say debt per capita is surprisingly a late lagging factor, really? even in places like Arizona and Nevada. That's interesting. So then, okay, so you've got the the places that we all know are too expensive for any reasonable person to live in, like um, the uh, Silicon Valley area, San Francisco. We know this about New York City, and then we've got the places where everyone sort of migrated to because they were very low cost. What about everything in the middle? What happened there? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in the rest of the country, there really wasn't as much, right, in, in Kansas City and St. Louis, there wasn't a spike in prices, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so, I mean, I mean, there was a little bit because of low interest rates, low long-term real interest rates, which really just were reflecting the, the sort of the present value of, you know, of a house as an investment. So, um, so I think partly that sort of feeds into the public perception of what was happening, you know, places like St. Louis or Kansas City or Dallas or whatever had a little bit of a rise in prices that was you know that was within the long-term norms that okay. what was happening in st louis and kansas city wouldn't we wouldn't have all freaked out about a housing bubble based on what was happening there but prices probably were 10 or 20 percent higher right. than they had been in the mid 90s because of things like interest rates which are just a fundamental part of how you would value a house right um so yeah so most of the country uh, you know, th- there wasn't a particular increase in in the rates of building. There wasn't a particular change in in, in levels of prices. So there really are sort of three. There's there's most of the countries like that that you know uh, prices were somewhat elevated, but within long term norms. And then you have the closed access parts of the country where the rates of building are just extremely low, like five. Like the rate of, of building in San Francisco and L.A. and New York City and Boston is less than, say, Detroit, where there, you know, where but there's a depopulation. Is it problem. is it geographically restricted? Or uh, I know that like Portland, Oregon, they've got uh, pretty serious restrictions on what can be built in their mm-hmm. brown zones and green zones. But why? I don't understand this. I read about it, and I haven't dug yeah. in enough to try to figure it out. But why are housing prices so high in San Francisco? Yeah. Well, I mean. If, it's. I think it's sort of just this, this thing, this thing that's happened slowly over the course of a century. And I, you know, I'm not so sure that. I mean, I'm not so sure that places like San Francisco are that different than, say, a, a Dallas. You know, I think if Dallas suddenly became, you know, or Austin's a good example. <clears throat> Austin right now is is the counterexample to San Francisco. They have they're building at very high rates, so costs remain low. But but you know, there's a lot of opportunity there in the tech sector. Um, it's sort of become a low cost alternative to a place like San Francisco. Sure. But I think as Austin grows, that they're, they're going to start hitting the same sort of limits. Uh, that they that they have in San Francisco, and it's really just a governance issue. It, it's it's. Is it like commuting distance? Like, do you hit a point where you can't continue to grow and spread as a city because mm-hmm. people aren't willing to do an hour long commute, or uh-huh. and then every then the prices start to go up? Well, I mean, at the core, it really is a political issue. It's a governance uh-huh. issue. I mean, you know, you look if you look at uh, like a, a 
uh, overhead view of, of the peninsula in San Francisco, yeah. it's it's just block after block of single family housing. And there should be mid rise and high rise uh, condo buildings, you know, throughout that peninsula. Sure. Right. It should it should look more like Manhattan. And, and it's not geography that's preventing those buildings from being built. It's it's politics. It's the locals go, you know, it, there, there's a there's a political framework in place to allow locals to prevent things from happening. And then the locals take advantage of the of that. Uh, of well, those institutions. Wealthy, wealthy locals. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's just, you know, human nature is, uh, you know, I, I have this place, there's a sanctity about the place I live. I want to yeah. have control over it. I want to keep it. So in a way, you know, you look at, say, white flight in the mid-20th century, sure. uh, you know, that that was punching down, right? That was like suburbs where 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 people for, uh, were were moving up into them that were a different ethnic group or whatever, and and that was creating tensions because people had you know so so that looked like racism and classism, and so we we happily uh, sort of um, complain about those people not wanting their neighborhoods to change, right? right. This is sort of. The, this is the same human nature, the same issue of like, I don't want my my local area to change. Uh, but this is more like punching up, like it's rich people moving in. And so yeah. so we don't. So our reaction to that is a little bit different, but it's really the same human nature. It's people don't want where they are to change. Right. And there and there's there's something to be respected about that. Like there is a sanctity to where you live. But I think we've let the pendulum swing too far and given people too much power. You know, especially when you think about these are like cities are agents of change, right? Sure. Manhattan shouldn't be uh, sheep pastures, right? It, right, was, right? it was once. It's Manhattan because it changed. Right. And so I actually think it, it, we should almost reverse that intuition and we should we should actually be uh, have more opposition to to people that prevent change happening in cities because that's what cities are there for. That's what gives them value. Um, and so really it isn't, I mean, geography ends up like looking like it's the cause, right? And it plays a part. I, you know, there's certainly mountains around and, and ocean and stuff around San Francisco that there are places you could put houses, but there's reasons you can't. But at, at its base, it's really just it's really just politics. Like there's places you could build more dense housing and, and it's not mountains that get in the way. It's people picketing outside the planning department. Plus, right? I think that. Um, what I see here and I've seen in other cities is we have some beautiful old housing stock and it's mm-hmm. brick and it's got beautiful woodwork and stained glass windows and people just feel emotionally that we need to hang on to that. And then you, we get this gentrification effect where people, you know, especially as they're older and making higher incomes, they want to move back into the city and schools are less important and they love these gorgeous old homes. And so that's what happens around here a lot and then it takes the lower income people who are living in that housing stock and they have to find a different place to go. I've seen it in Cincinnati. We certainly have it here in St. Louis um, because it's attractive to a certain group of people and then it does shove uh, lower income people out. And Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's one of the issues is that, especially in cities, like ch- ch- progress is change, right? And and sometimes that change affects people with higher incomes. Sometimes that change affects people with lower incomes. And we tend to have different reactions to that. And, and those people who are affected by change have different amounts of political power to to obstruct it or not obstruct it. And that, you know, that's all a big complicated sort of political mess. Um, 
But I, I think at its base is just the problem of dealing with progress, really, yeah. right? Um, and and yeah, so I, you know, I, in terms of the place, the the closed access cities, to me, the a telling feature, you know, there's a lot of sort of tell in in this narrative that I've created. There's a lot of sort of uh, light bulb sort of tells that you can see, and, and a lot of people, for instance, blame geography on, say, San Francisco not having more houses. And, and one of the tells that I would say is, you know, if you go to San Francisco, if if geography was the problem, mm-hmm. and a developer came into San Francisco and said, "Hey, I have this, I have this great idea where I can build ten thousand units and it's going to be affordable and everything," people in San Francisco would be saying, "Oh, hallelujah! They've solved the geography problem, right?" Mm-hmm. But that's not what you see in San Francisco. Anytime the developer tries to do anything, people say, "No, you can't do that, right? No, you sure. can't build that. The price is wrong, and it's going to change the neighborhood and et cetera, right?" If if that's a sign that politics is the key factor here, not geography, because if it was geography, they'd be happy to have be finding solutions. Yeah. Why did you call the book shut out? Uh, Because the, the, um, the core problem is people being shut out of, uh, you know, being locked out of, of metropolitan housing markets. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, and in fact, g- going back to uh, the gentrification issue that you talked about, um, I think that's sort of one of the tricks, sort of one of the, um, you know, there's a there's an old uh, French economist called Bastiat that like talked about how there was the seen and the unseen, right? And and I think that's an issue. Like when we see a new, say a new building gets built and say they tear down a half a dozen existing houses that probably are old and dilapidated, right? And so they're probably going to have lower income households. And and we see that half a dozen families being forced to move and that's painful and we don't like to see that happen. And we we see that displacement happening and it bothers us. Um, But the thing is when that building doesn't get built, there are dozens of those families that are unseen that, that quietly have to leave the city because the housing stock in the metropolitan area is not keeping up. So what happens in a place like San Francisco is every year, tens of thousands of low-income households have to move away year after year after year. They're not visible to, it's quietly happening throughout the city and they're displaced every year because there's not just a general increase in the number of units. And this is systematic, like you, Systematically, you you there, there are, you know is a high correlation uh, between the number of just any kind of unit, luxury units, whatever, sure. any kind of units. The more units a city builds, the fewer people are displaced, and the displaced people are overwhelmingly people with lower income that, of course, get outbid for access to that. Yeah, city. that's a, definitely something that we talk about a lot here in Missouri and at the Show Me Institute is this low housing. Uh, low-income housing stock, and my colleague Patrick Tui wrote on that very issue, which is to say that if you just build more housing stock of any level, luxury, mid-level, whatever it is, then that will keep a more steady supply of low-income housing as well, because that keeps that supply available. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so rather than what we like to do is give out low-income housing tax credits, they're federally subsidized, the state's trying to decide what to do about our role in it. And we know that there's a lot of um, fraud, waste, and abuse in the system where those credits get traded around. And lots of times developers make a lot of money. You don't end up with a lot of low-income housing stock. And it ends up in the wrong place. It doesn't end up in the place with the biggest disparity between incomes and rents. And so it's not a successful system that we know. But figuring Uh out what would be a more successful system, 
I guess, would be perhaps just reducing regulations on building housing stock in general? Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be uh, helpful. Although I think in, in St. Louis and Kansas City, it's a much different problem than they have in San Francisco and L.A. I and, right and, about that. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is the problem is mostly from our reactions to the housing bubble. So yeah, what we I did mean, you is haven't we told plan- me why everyone's wrong on that. Uh, that which is part? so entrenched, this idea of wh- how we got the housing bubble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, so, you know, the idea is that there, you know, the, there was this craze, the, this this fervor for, for you know, buying houses and, and and the the lenders are all just went crazy and, they, you know, they all they cared about was next quarter's profits and they were just lending and lending and lending and, and borrowers, you know, just, you know, there are all these families out there that just didn't care if they had a mortgage payment that was twice as much as they could afford. They just had, there was a frenzy for home ownership. And... It, it's amazing how um, how the data is just doesn't tell that story at all. In fact, the entire subprime boom. So the so, so this whole boom in privately issued mortgages, you know, that happened, you know, that that ended up that did end up being part of the collapse. And these mortgages were packaged into things that became sy- systemically disruptive after sure. after the bust happened. Um, <clears throat> That, so that bubble in those sort of mortgages was like 2004 to mid-2007. Okay. That, uh, all, that entire period is associated with a decline in home ownership. Really? There is, there, there was, there was no, there's no correlation between rising home ownership huh. and, and the boom in these new, um, new mortgages. Um, and so, that, you know, that, that thing just didn't happen. Um, huh. It was mostly what what those new mortgages was doing was was basically allowing uh, allowing the, you know the the Google employee in San Francisco that was sharing a, a rental unit with seven other people and they were all making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year right, <laughs> right. It, it, those those new risky mortgages were giving them the opportunity to buy a house to buy a house in San Francisco as a rent hedge yeah. and that was forcing some. Well, you know, somewhere uh, through the, you know, through the process, somebody in, in San Francisco had to move away from San Francisco to make that unit available. And, the, you know, point. they moved to, to Phoenix. Right. Um, yeah. So um, so they're really just. So that's not actually true that that caused a boom in home ownership. Is it true that there are today like neighborhoods of empty homes in Phoenix or in Las Vegas, like uh, foreclosed neighborhoods or empty high-rise buildings in Boca Raton, Florida. Is that true? Uh, it's I, it's not so much true today. Now, that was true in 2010, but really what happened is, you know, because so, so the country, we saw what was happening and it all got blamed on lending. And so mm-hmm. we clamped down on, well, you know, first we sort of let there was a panic in those subprime markets and we just sort of let that collapse and 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 didn't do anything to counteract it and eventually the government took over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac okay. and we passed Dodd-Frank and the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau and we in, initiated all these new rules about who can get a loan based on the false premise that the wrong people getting loans was the cause of the bubble right okay. um and so what happened is in, in places like Phoenix, there was this migration surge from 
you know, say 2003 to 2005, uh, where, you know, a place like Phoenix has been growing above average for, you know, uh, pretty linearly since World War II. Huh. Uh, suddenly during that period, their growth rate actually went above trend, right? So they, they, they were growing even faster than they could account for. Then when we put the clamps down on the lending market, there were two types of people moving into Phoenix. There were people moving there uh, uh, from, from, say, L.A. There were people moving there because the rents were too high in L.A. and they were trying to escape the high costs. Okay. And there were people that sold their million-dollar bungalow in L.A. and they, they're going to Phoenix with a pocket full of money trying to find a, a place to invest it, right? So there's a bunch of households moving into Phoenix that need homes. Okay. And there's a bunch of people with money burning a hole in their pocket looking for a way to invest it, right? And and uh, so you have you have everything in Phoenix that that's sort of the ingredients for a bubble, right? But it's happening because of this migration event. Well, when we put the clamps down on the lending market and suddenly that the spike in the real estate market in LA stops, then we stop that whole process and now suddenly Phoenix goes from taking in tens of thousands of new households every year you know, even above the long-term trend to suddenly that just stops in its tracks. And suddenly from 2006 to 2008, Phoenix goes from say, uh, you know, uh, 30,000, I forget the numbers, but say 30,000 households moving in a year to basically none. Wow. Right? And so, so. You've been suddenly, here that, you've been there the whole time. So you've witnessed all of this. Exactly. Happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And of course the local developers all, all gnash their teeth and say, oh, here we did it again. We overbuilt. We yeah. always do this. We're just a bubble city and we overbuilt again. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry. It does If it's a free market, if it's regulated, if it, it doesn't matter what kind of housing market you are, you can't go, you're not going to manage going from tens of thousands of households sure. moving to a city to nothing and not have some extra inventory sitting around, right? right, right. In fact, part of, part of the problem is a lot of those were, were perfectly... Um, uh, you know, reasonable buyers that had their financing lined up and everything and went to new home builders and said, okay, we've got it all lined up, start building a house for us. And nine months later, the house is built and the builder says, all right, move on in. And they've, they've been waiting to sell their house in LA. And then suddenly that market's, uh, you know, Soft. has topped out yeah. and they say, you know what, we gave you the $10,000 escrow money or whatever. Yeah. Keep it. We're, we're staying in LA. And now suddenly builders have thousands of homes in Phoenix that, that were that were built based on careful, like the, yeah. they had they had a buyer lined up with financing for that house. There was nothing speculative about those houses mm -hmm. they're building. Now suddenly they're empty inventory. Hmm. But everyone everyone looks at that and it looks so much like we overbuilt. You know, it, it, anybody looking at the Phoenix market in 2005 could be forgiven for thinking it was in a speculative bubble. The builders in 2005 in Phoenix were literally holding lotteries. Like you would go to a, <laughs> a new neighborhood in Phoenix and they would have five permits for new lots that week and 10 people would show up to buy oh, and they would say, put your names in a hat and these are the five people that get a house this week. If you didn't, if we didn't pull your name, come back next week and we'll do it again and the price is gonna be $5,000 higher, right? So A, that's, a, that's an excellent, excellent way to create a speculative fervor is to Absolutely. let speculators know that there's a lack of supply and that the price will certainly go up next yep. month right, right. Um, but secondly that's not uh, that's not an over uh, oversupply like clearly that's undersupply right it was actually yep. under if demand that exceeds that's, its supply that's undersupply yeah, yeah. right yeah. so 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 what we did seemingly after the bubble burst or while it was bursting is what you just said tightened up credit um Regulations made it harder to get mortgages, harder to build housing stock. 
what should we have done? Like, what's the policy solution that would have been uh, smarter and maybe would have le- not led to the problems in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that's a local problem. You know, San, we have to solve that problem. And there are things okay. happening at the state level in California to try to loosen up uh, that, um, you know, uh, zoning and everything that's, that's but creating But we did try problem. to solve it with the federal government, didn't we? The we did, yeah. Oh, was yeah, that a so- mistake? It was actually okay. um, so. Before I get to that, let, let me go back and and describe what the problem is in San or in Kansas City and St. Louis, and then and then after I describe what the problem is, then I'll, then maybe I'll move from there to what we should have done. Is yes. that okay? That sounds great. So, so, um, basically, what because because we decided that people that shouldn't be home buyers was the problem. And we clamped down on, you know, is essentially we clamp, it's, it's almost like a class-based. Yeah, because uh, we hit the bottom, right? Yeah, yeah. So we basically, in fact, if you look at things like FICO scores, um, uh, so FICO scores top, you know, top out, at, I don't know, eight or 900. And, you know, the, I think the median FICO score, but that's like a credit score, right? To see if you're mm-hmm. capable of handling debt. Um, the, Median FICO score in the country is probably around 700. Um, and of course, you know, two thirds of American households are homeowners. So, uh, so the typical, you know, to, uh, among the, the body of, of home buyers, you're going to have 600 ish uh, sure. FICO scores in that if you're having two thirds of the country be homeowners. Of and for decades, they've been homeowners without any problem, right? Sure. Um, so before the before the bubble and during the bubble, the typical uh, FICO score, the the uh, average FICO score of a home buyer was something around seven ten. Okay. Um, after after the government took over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and after they passed you know regulations, you know basically they're they're hovering over the banks, making sure that you know uh, there's this ability to repay standard and mm-hmm. and, all, and they have to prove that they did good underwriting and all this stuff. The average FICO score over the course of 2008 shot up to like 750. Wow. So now before that, it had never it had never uh, changed more than a few points. I mean, okay. this is like a, this is like. Uh, a multi, you know, this is well beyond several times. It's an order of magnitude more change than anything okay. that's happened since, say, the Great Depression in lending markets. Sure. Um, along with that, you can see. So, so it doesn't matter if you're San Francisco or or Seattle or uh, Seattle or um, St. Louis or Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Every city across the country, whether they had a bubble or didn't have a bubble, whether homes are affordable or expensive. And every city now, when that happens, you see a divergence in the top end of that city and the bottom end of the city, where the the prices at the top end sort of started stabilizing and prices at the bottom just dropped through the floor. Because people who could have reasonably gotten a reasonable mortgage and repaid it with a credit score of 680 or 690 now are shut out of the market. Exactly. So we destroyed demand for home ownership in those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. We didn't do anything to affect the the demand for a shelter, right? Sure, All those sure. families you still need own, a place to you live. You have to live somewhere. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so rent inflation, actually, most of the inflation we see today is due to rent inflation because mm-hmm. we've because we've blocked a functioning housing market at the lower half of every city's housing market. And so um, so the thing is, you know, 
I mean, there's certainly things we should do to make home building easier and, and uh, you know, and reduce regulations uh, in terms of, of the building end. But the thing is, uh, if it was regulations that, that were preventing, that were making housing unaffordable in those neighborhoods, we would see higher prices in those neighborhoods, right? The builders mm. would, would, would still mm. be building, but they'd have to charge a higher price to, to cover the regulations. But what we actually see uh, and this this is true of both St. Louis and Kansas City. Since since the crisis, low end homes have lost value compared to high end homes, That's and right. we're not build we're not building anything in those markets. And the reason is we've we've pushed prices too low to induce new building, and we did it by basically eliminating the the homeowner market in those neighborhoods. Uh, so there's a bunch of people that are sort of grandfathered into their house that probably yeah. live in a house that they couldn't qualify to buy today, mm -hmm. and they're just holding on to what they've got. And and effectively, since since the bubble, what we've done is locked um, millions of American households out of the best buyer's market we've had in generations. So right? what's the fix for that then? Do we loosen up credit again like we did pre-bubble, or do we just go back to some measure of reasonable... Uh, 19, you know, 80s, 90s level of uh, judging whether uh, a mortgage applicant can repay the loan. Well, uh, yeah, think? exactly. Yeah, I mean, basically, we should just stop doing everything we started doing after the after the bubble. Okay. You know, I mean, there's certainly there were there were aspects of what was happening in 2004 and five that you know probably deserve a second look, and there were pro there were things that were reckless yeah. that. It. But but it's it's like the pendulum swung exactly an inch to this side and we swung it ten inches back to the other side. Right. And I'm not so sure that St. Louis and Kansas City, if if the bubble and the crisis and all that stuff hadn't happened, and the housing market in St. Louis and Kansas City, as it was in 2005, just kept moving along. I'm not sure anybody would have ever noticed there was a problem. I'm you because know, we. I, I don't, so St. Louis and Kansas City weren't dramatically affected by the housing bubble, but we are being affected by the credit tightening. Exactly. So sort of I, uh -huh. not, like and, not and the I, worst of both worlds, but like we didn't even get the boom. We just were going along at our normal yeah. rate. And now we've got a problem on the low income end because uh, the credit markets have all tightened up. Yeah, yeah. And so what happens is at the low end, you know, so basically you have all these institutions and corporations now buying up low end stock because they're the only ones that can get funding mm -hmm. and they buy it up and turn it into rental housing. And effectively what we've done, we, we've pressed prices down so that we so that builders can't afford to build new stock at the low end. And we've created this sort of dislocation where they basically, we've created a haves and haves not society based mm. on access to housing credit. And it's gonna take a long time to work out. I, I, I think in the long run, households tend to spend, what we spend on rent tends to mostly be a function of our incomes. Mm -hmm. So eventually, if, if 50 years from now, if we don't change what we're doing now, 50 years from now, I think what will happen is people will be spending as much on in terms of rent uh, as they always have, but people at the low end will just be living in, in units, smaller units with less amenities. Mm. Uh, because what we've done is we've, if you think about a house as an investment, uh, the, the, the rent versus the price is sort of like the interest rate on a bond or the price to earnings ratio on a stock, right? Mm -hmm. And so we we press prices down, but because that has an effect on supply, 
we've compressed price to rent. So in the end, what happens is prices go down, but rents also go up at the low end, right? Mm. And in fact, you see that, I, I don't see it, uh, it, I mean, this is a general case across the country. Specifically, I don't see it in the data in St. Louis, but I definitely see it in Kansas City where rents, rent inflation at the low end has been higher than rent inflation at the high end. Can you just and, explain that one more time, why that is? And that's because, because we've, um, because pushing price down has cut off supply. Uh, just then, imagine it, you're a celebrity in the big short <laughs> in a bathtub. And uh, now you're explaining this to uh, me in a way I can understand because I want to okay. make sure I understand this. this is an important so, point. All right. So, yeah. So if I'm renting a low, you know, uh, if I'm in a house that's $1,000 a month rent uh, and my landlord keeps raising the rent on me, mm -hmm. the, the, my best friend in the world is a mortgage broker that would come to me and say, you know what? I can get you a mortgage for a house down the street for 400 bucks a month. Why don't you get out of this, get out from True. under this guy and okay. go on your gotcha. own place? Today, the renter does goes to the bank and the bank says, Elizabeth Warren says I should be in jail if I give you that mortgage. <laughs> okay. right? So, so sorry, you're, you're stuck with a thousand dollars a month's rent. So those are powers. Difference. Yeah. Yeah. Power so, so the, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So the thing is that ha the house they're living in is a, is priced at a lower price point than it should be. And that's raising the yield that their landlord gets to own on uh, okay. it. And, and, and part of that comes from over time, the landlord can keep raising the rents because they have no options. They don't have options because the federal government says, no, you're, you, you, you know, we're not going like to tell captive people, market. Oh, have... Exactly. And, uh, and the funny no. thing is, you know, we don't go around saying, you know, you can't afford a thousand dollar a month rent. So we're going to kick you out to the street because, you know, just as a matter of macro prudential yeah. regulation for your protection, we're going to we're going to make it illegal for you to pay a thousand dollar a month rent. But right. we do feel like we can go, you know what, we're making it illegal for you to have a five hundred dollar a month mortgage payment. Sure. Right. <laughs> so what's the solution to increasing the low income housing stock? We have we do. I believe in Missouri, the uh, this low income housing tax credit, like doing it through tax credits to developers has not been successful here. So what is a good solution from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, the solution is to just stop doing all the all this stuff to, to I call it sort of governing by attribution error. Mm -hmm. right? The attribution error is like a cognitive uh, fallacy that like I do things because of the constraints that I have to deal with and stuff. Other people do things because they're dumb and they're uh -huh. greedy, right? And they're and we need to stop assuming everyone's dumb and let them make their own decisions. And sometimes that decision will be buying a house, and sometimes that decision will be buying a house that I personally would consider too risky. But maybe it's not too risky for them if they're stuck in a thousand dollar a month rental that the landlord keeps raising on them, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, the first step is just allowing those people back into the homeowner market. And I think a key issue here uh, that I hope over time, sort of the public discourse uh, sort of can can sort of uh, develop a, a, a intuition about is that housing affordability is first and foremost about what's the rental value of that unit you're in. Okay. Uh, we tend to think of housing affordability in terms of price because most of us are owners and we're, and we're thinking about, can you afford the mortgage payment and all that? But really that's just, that's a financial um, choice. That's, that's a, you know, that's a, uh, Everybody needs a roof over their head. They don't. Everybody doesn't need to own the roof. And really, even for owners, the rental value of that unit is the most important factor in terms of what that unit's going to cost to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so the thing is, it, 
if we allow, you know, the, the, the problem of funding a house is actually an obstacle to, to households to be owners and to create new supply. And to the extent that the federal government can remove those obstacles, that actually reduces, um, you know, the obstacles to housing. It actually in, helps increase the supply of housing and, and brings rents down. So I think we I think there's actually room to be a lot less worried about some of the federal programs that help create access to home ownership, because mm -hmm. that actually even if it raises prices, it actually makes housing more affordable in the long run. And, I, and we're seeing the opposite of that right now because we've blocked that and we're seeing rents mm -hmm. rise in every city. We're seeing a natural experiment of what happens when you don't get rid of the obstacles to home ownership. Sure. So I think we need the federal oh. government out of the way and we need to find local solutions to, in a thoughtful way, um, help low-income uh, residents who want to own their own home in a reasonable way, make that happen. And then yeah. that will take some of the power and control away from the developers and the owners of rental units. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are concerned about this, the embedded subsidies in, in say Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, yep. and all that. And, and I, I think if you run the numbers just in terms of scale, uh, the the subsidy that comes out of those programs is really very small. Now, I, I'd be I'd be perfectly happy with getting rid of all the income tax benefits to, you know, the, the mortgage deduction. There's a big implicit Huge. tax. Good yeah, luck with yeah. that one, by the way. Exactly. Well, you know, they, actually, they they did take a step in the right direction with salt with the 2017. Yeah. Yep. And salt is another case. And actually, the biggest uh, subsidy to home ownership is the is the fact that a homeowner doesn't write themselves a rental a check for rent each month so that so that that's an implicit income they get from owning their house that doesn't get taxed so a landlord you give him a rent check every month and he has to claim that as income and he has to pay tax on that that's actually uh, the largest subsidy to home ownership and it's very regressive right because mm -hmm. it's people with with the highest incomes that are homeowners that own the biggest homes um so that's that 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 would be a difficult one to, to sort of get rid of because it, it's not even something that we that we it's not like you deduct your you'd have to like capture the capital gains every year or something right yeah yeah well I mean to me actually I, I'd like to just see sort of capital income like corporate income tax the best way to get rid of that taxes to just not tax capital in general right mm -hmm. and then and then home ownership is a particular class of capital that doesn't get taxed loses its um, loses its favor, right? And the, and the the fact that housing is a tax dodge just because of this implicit tax issue is actually highly regressive, right? Sure. So any any tax on capital ends up being regressive because it creates this implicit tax dodge by owning a big house, right? and especially if you own it without a mortgage, right? If you own it, own it, then that's a huge. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because you're still because you're still not paying tax on the rent you would pay yourself for for being your own landlord, right? So the the thing is, those subsidies just dwarf any you know uh, those amount to say a quarter trillion dollars a year. That's highly regressive. The 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 the, the 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 subsidy to to the housing market that comes out of Fannie and Freddie maybe is I don't know like it's less than a hundred billion. It may be okay. like. Uh, I forget. I should have looked at these. Maybe it's like twelve billion. It's not very much at okay. all. The, the thing is, those programs provide access. You know, they, they create a, a way for 
you know, sort of a, a standardized way to issue mortgages that really doesn't have that much of a of the subsidizing effect on the market. And I think okay. there's way too much concern about those programs um, as a subsidy when we really should think of those programs more as a way for the federal government to sort of provide stability in the marketplace. And mm. effectively, what we did is the opposite of that. We, in fact, those, pro, you know, Fannie and Freddie and FHOA were very countercyclical. They sat out that market in 2004 okay. and 2005. They were losing market share like crazy in 2004 and 2005. And then they were regaining market share when the subprime markets collapsed, which is what they should have been doing. Mm -hmm. But because we had the wrong idea about what happened, Everyone said, oh, no, they're just, you know, now here comes Fannie and Freddie and they're just boosting this mark. You know, they're just adding right. more to the to the bubble. And and we we forced those institutions to be pro cyclical when the whole purpose of having them should be to be counter cyclical, to like be there when the market collapses. Yep. Right. But when the market collapsed, we said, no, that's just going to be money in the pocket of the shareholders of Fannie and Freddie. And, you know, that whole that whole private ownership thing is prop is a bad model. Right. Mm -hmm. And that because it's a bad model, it led us to be pro-cyclical, right? Yeah. So, um, but so in terms of um, themes on this podcast, which you may or may not have listened to, we did one recently with um, Neil McCluskey of Cato on the potential for a bubble in higher education. And similar theme insofar as the federal government was creating a third-payer system that was leading to bad decision-making, and if the federal uh -huh. government could get out of the way a little bit, then the market could work better. And I feel like that's what you're saying here. Like the artificial constraints being put on the market by the federal government in this case are causing unintended, or I don't know if they're unintended, causing consequences that are yeah. hurting the people who are supposed, who need the most to be benefited from the situation. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Same with yeah. Uh, student yeah. loan borrowers. Like the federal government yeah. is creating a system that's not beneficial to uh, like low-income college goers. Uh, and it sounds mm -hmm. like they need to get out. Of so here's the thing. Let's get the federal government out of the way. Is, yeah. that, is, that, yeah. is that a good sort of simple statement to sum it up? The federal government so. should yeah. get out of the way <laughs> and stop yeah. deciding yeah. what they want people to do and then drafting policies to make that happen because it doesn't work yeah. well in many cases. Yeah. That's my yeah. takeaway yeah. anyway. Well, great to talk to you today, Kevin. Uh, any good deals to be had still in Phoenix? Should people be uh, house shopping down there? Or is that all sort of settled itself um, out now? You know, Phoenix, because we have this sort of constant flow of, of migration in any case, that's sure. slightly recovered. So I think Phoenix is better than most of it. But I'd say my advice would be to go buy a, a low-end rental in Kansas City or St. Louis. And you know, you'll, you'll probably make... <laughs> I think you're right there. I'm sorry to say that's not happy for us, but I think that's absolutely right. Um, and then yeah. you can just raise rent and there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. All right, great. Well, yeah. <laughs> nice chatting today. I do appreciate it. I learned a ton. Um, I like when people... Uh, caused me to question what I thought I knew. So I really appreciate you explaining all of this to me. And um, if people want to, like your book right now is shut out and you're going to have another book coming out? Yeah, the the second book probably won't be till next year, but uh, yeah. All right, we'll look for it. Awesome. Great. Thanks, hey, Kevin. it's been a real pleasure and thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org. <laughs>